the end of John chapter 3, there are some verses that you probably didn't even know were there. You'll find them right after the Nicodemus conversation, and they're right before the well-known encounter with the woman at the well. So let's slow down and not get too far ahead of ourselves. There's a lot to rethink in this section about the words of John the Baptist and just how far back the Bride of Christ existed. Welcome to Episode 7, The Voice of the Bride and the Bridegroom. In this episode, we're going to be building on lots of information that I shared back in Episode 4, the wedding theme in John Chapter 2. And so if you haven't listened to that podcast, it'd probably be good to go back and either hear it for a first time or refresh your memory of what was discussed back there, because we're going to be jumping in and then digging a little bit deeper into the content here in Chapter 3. Specifically, one of the verses that I highlighted in episode four is this chapter three, verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Statement of John the Baptist. And in episode four, I mentioned how this statement in 329 continued and further built upon the wedding theme in the book of John. And we in the church today, we, we think we know how to define the bride of Christ. We, we do from a New Testament standpoint, but we often miss the cues that are given to us in the text about where this imagery is even coming from. And you might be surprised to find out that it goes deep into the Old Testament. So let's dive in and take a look around. Let's also remember that by the time John, the author of this gospel, is writing this information about what John the Baptist said, it's well after the ministry of Jesus has ended here on earth, and he's ascended to heaven, and he's been in heaven for quite a while, and his followers have written three other gospels, right? And John is filling in the gaps with a lot of new information in his gospel. This is well after the fact, though. So the fact that John, the author is spending so much time, again, here in John chapter 3, as he did in the first chapter, with the words of John the Baptist, it suggests that there's likely a lot of John the Baptist followers that are still out there, that still need to hear the words of John the Baptist, because maybe they just came to his ministry for a short period of time and got baptized and then left and didn't hear any more again from him. And it just suggests that there are some followers that maybe— came and were baptized by John the Baptist and heard him preach and accepted his words as true as a forerunner to the Christ, but then never got the update that that actual Christ figure had come. So he spends a lot of time here at the end of John chapter 3. These would be the last words that we get in John's gospel of John the Baptist directly. He'll be referred to again later in chapter 5. And John the disciple is just encouraging everyone to get on board with who Jesus is. And he's doing that here with John the Baptist's words directly. I'd like to just unpack a little bit from the commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. 
Uh, Andreas Kostenberger is a research professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology and founder and director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he got to write for this commentary on John chapter 3. He says, The Baptist words in 329, which liken him to the friend of the bridegroom, cast John's relationship to Jesus in terms of a best man, standing ready to do the bridegroom's bidding at his wedding. And there's a note in here that says we should also recognize that Jesus calls himself the bridegroom in Matthew 9, 15. And I'll just hop over to that real quick and read that. Matthew 9, 15 says, And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom in other places, is the note within this commentary. Back to Kostenberger. In light of the Old Testament background, where Israel is depicted as the bride of Yahweh, and he gives some uh, context there, uh, Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, Jeremiah 2, 2, Hosea 2, 16 through 20, he suggests the Baptist is suggesting that Jesus is Israel's awaited king and Messiah. The bride imagery, this is something that we'll discuss in a little more detail. Kostenberger says the bride imagery is further applied to the church in New Testament theology. And the examples he gives are 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Revelation 21, 2, Revelation 21.9, and Revelation 22.17. And those New Testament passages, we often say, yeah, the church, that's the bride of Christ. But what we don't understand is that the bride imagery goes back into the Old Testament. A lot of our theological systems like to divide and separate the Old Testament relationship of God and the New Testament relationship of God to his people. And I'm just going to suggest that the wording here in John chapter 3 might not make that separation as neat as we have been told that it is. Kostenberger had said that this bride of Yahweh coming out of the Old Testament is a theme, it's a repetitive theme. I'm just going to read one of the verses that he quoted there, the Isaiah 62, 4 and 5 passage, starting here in verse 4. It will no longer be said to you, forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. And again, Jeremiah 2.2 2 and Hosea 2.16 through 20 have similar imagery back there in the Old Testament. This idea of the bridegroom and the bride comes straight out of the Old Testament. And we like to say that's God's relationship to Israel. I would generally agree with that, although what we often find when we go back into the Old Testament and look at God's people, people of faith, they were oftentimes people from many different situations, not just one ethnic group, as we've been led to believe. Coming out of Egypt, a lot of the Egyptians came with the Israelites and were assimilated into the culture. As different people groups came in and fought wars and conquered and intermarried with 
the Old Testament people of God, there were a lot of people that we read about that didn't necessarily start out as ethnic Jews, but ended up being part of the people of God, part of the bride and the bridegroom imagery. And those people existed again as we transition into and read about what happens during this transition into the New Testament period. And there's one passage that I'd like to share out of the Old Testament that I think marries this John 3.29 statement of John the Baptist very well. Remember, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And you might ask yourself the question, why is it that the friend of the bridegroom is rejoicing so much just at the sound of the voice of the bridegroom? And for that, we need to go all the way back up to the first verse in this section. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now, you don't need to know everything about the Old Testament to get this, but you do need to know some of the basics. And basics are that eventually one nation, Israel, became two nations. It was called the Divided Kingdom. And 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel ended up in the northern kingdom. And that northern kingdom, very confusingly, was also called Israel, (laughs) even though it wasn't all 12 tribes, and it was just 10. And then we call the southern two Judah. So Israel and Judah. And the history lesson is that the northern 10 tribes get taken into exile first. And then a number of years pass, and God's prophets start talking to the southern kingdom and warning them that they too could be taken into captivity as well. And eventually, the doomsday messages come. And so we're just going to dive down into one of those messages out of Jeremiah chapter 25. This, interestingly, is not one that Kostenberger referenced, but I think it fits nicely. And Jeremiah 25 is a prophecy of captivity. And it's interesting in Chapter 25, verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah, that's the prophet who wrote the book, concerning all the people of Judah. And it was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. That sets the stage. So this Jeremiah passage that we're about to dig down into, the very first thing is that Jeremiah the prophet is coming to and giving words to the people of Judah. And that's important because... Back in John chapter 3, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. It's the same section of land. And John, the author, knew that when he started using words that the prophet Jeremiah had previously used. And back in Jeremiah chapter 25, it says, And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. And then skipping down to verse 8, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, now here's the message from the prophet Jeremiah to the southern kingdom. Moreover, verse 10, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp, This land will be a desolation and a horror 
and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The words of Jeremiah the prophet to the southern kingdom. And I hope you got it there. I'm just going to connect a few of the things. Not just am I going to send all these people in and destroy the nation, but I will take from them the voice of joy. Now let's just toggle back just from that one statement. Let's toggle back to John chapter 3. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. What is it that Jeremiah said? I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of of the bride. That voice had been gone from this land for how long? I mean, the idea is in the Jeremiah passage that the voice would be removed, that they would serve their 70 years and they would come back from their exile. But what John the Baptist is saying is now that voice left. Judah was destroyed. And the voice of the bride and the bridegroom has not returned. But now, John the Baptist says, my joy has been made full. I am greatly rejoicing because of the bridegroom's voice. The bridegroom is back. So I just want you to maybe rethink what you think about who the church is and who the people of God have been throughout time in history. And I want to suggest that they're maybe a little more connected than we allow them to be in our current systems. Our current systems really want to separate between Old and New Testament, and I get that. I'm not saying we get rid of that. I'm just saying the way that this transition is given to us in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. We're being invited to see more of a connection between the old and the new, the people of God that followed him in the old and the people of God that transitioned out of the old into the new and then continued on and became known as the church. I want to just suggest that it's a lot more fluid than I think we've been told. The voice of the bride and the bridegroom is imagery coming out of the Old Testament, and it doesn't work to say that is the Old Testament bride of God, Yahweh, and this is the New Testament bride of Christ. The authors of the New Testament saw this transition happening before their eyes and invited us to think of this New Testament bride in terms of a continuation of a theme that had been in place for centuries. I'd like to bring in some of the words of Merrill Tenney. He was a American professor of New Testament and Greek. He authored several books. He was a general editor of the Zondervan Pictorial Bible Dictionary. He did a lot of the original translation for the New American Standard Bible back in the day. He passed away back in 1985, but he also wrote and contributed to the John section of the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Uh, It's a publication of Zondervan Publishing House back in 1981. 
And he wrote in the John section just how far the simile of bride and bridegroom should be pressed is questionable. Should the bride represent Israel, to whom the Messiah came, or the church? And that's just an honest question that he's asking there. Back to Tenney. The imagery is applied to both, and he quotes the Hosea 2, 19-20 passage and also brings in Ephesians 5, 32. But the focus, he says, of this passage, the one in the Gospel of John, is on the bridegroom, not the bride. The emphasis is on the relation of Jesus and John, the Baptist, rather than on the relation of Jesus to Israel or the church. To what extent this explanation of the relation of John the Baptist to Jesus was prompted by later conditions in the church, well, that's not stated. Adherence to John's preaching and baptism certainly existed in the middle of the first century and were widespread. Let me say that again. He's saying that a lot of the reason why John the author wrote this section of the gospel in the end of chapter 3 is because adherence to John the Baptist's preaching and his baptism ministry certainly existed in the middle of the first century, and it was widespread. And he gives two examples that we talked about in episode four of the podcast. Apollos of Alexandria, who ministered at Ephesus, was one of these adherents, and Aquila and Priscilla later instructed him in the ministry of Christ. That's found in Acts 18, 24 through 26. And then he goes on to remind us that when Paul arrived at Ephesus, he found others who held the same belief. Paul himself brought them into a full understanding of the work of Christ, Acts 19, 1 through 7. It is likely that this halfway understanding persisted among John's converts. That's John the Baptist's converts. And while he calls it a halfway understanding, we also need to recognize that it was fully salvific understanding. And I'm not trying to say truth is relative. What I'm trying to say is, in that first century context, there were people that believed enough about God's Old Testament revelation and that a Messiah was coming. And then they further believed what John the Baptist was saying about the voice of the bridegroom showing back up in the southern part of the country. And decades later, they were still looking for the Messiah long after Jesus's ministry on earth had come to pass. And their understanding was still enough in that context. They were the bride. John the Baptist's followers were the bride all the way through the middle of the first century and even into the time when Paul came into Ephesus. It's the bride, but it's a weird combination of an Old Testament group of followers, people that believed in God, people expecting a Messiah but had missed him because life got in the way. And I just don't think we're reading the Gospels in the way that the original context encourages us to. The authors are encouraging us to see this as a fluid transition between covenants. One that for at least one generation of people included a lot of ambiguity, a lot of people that hadn't heard everything, but they still believed what they knew. And this group, this bride of Christ that the New Testament invites us to understand is not just a fluid group of Old Testament Jews coming in, but it is unexpected people from unexpected people groups that are faithful to what they know at the time. From the end of chapter 3 of John, the last two verses say this, The Father loves the Son 
and has given all things into his hand. That wording suggests to me that what we're witnessing in the gospel story and in the book of Acts is the father who loves the son is giving all things into his hand. It's not just control over the cosmos. It's actual believers that believe in God the Father, and he's handing them off to Jesus the Son. He's giving them into his hands for safekeeping. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And we get to meet one of those in our next episode. It's John chapter 4, and the wedding theme continues, and we'll take a closer look at the woman at the well and how she fits into Old Testament imagery and how we're invited to see her as an unexpected member of God's family. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in to Episode 7 of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. I want to remind you that we've got lots of resources for you available at RethinkingScripture.com. All of it is free. I invite you to make your way over there. Subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't done that already, be sure to tell your friends. And we'll see you back here next time on the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Bye.